journey together uh, for the past uh, weeks since Ash Wednesday about the, uh, about the suffering path with our Lord. And we've been looking at uh, different aspects of it, of his walk. And tonight, of course, we come to the culmination of his suffering, and that is on the cross. We call this um, royalty undercover because what the world saw as a defeat was actually victory. What the world saw as having uh, uh, victory over top of one that continued to speak into their sin, it was actually his work that overcame sin. Royal decrees are statements that reveal the identity, the authority, and the character of the leader. Many times, these, these decrees come on leaders when there is great distress. And he is called to state that which is in his heart, the undergirding of what he believes. It was President Lincoln's um, Emancipation Proclamation that all men are free and equal. It was Winston Churchill who shouted over top of Britain saying, never give up, never give up. It was John F. Kennedy saying, don't ask what the country can do for you. Ask what you can do for the country. And in these decrees, the character, the authority, and the identity of the one is known. As you hear the decrees spoken, I pray that you hear the character, the identity of Jesus Christ. A reading from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. Trouble is near. There is no one to help me. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint and my heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shard. 
My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. But for those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May their hearts live forever. All of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All of the families of the nation will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nation. All of the rich of the earth will feast and worship. And all who go down to dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. For this service, it's really up to you whether you sit or stand throughout the course of it, but uh, let's uh, sing together. The first royal decree comes from Luke twenty three thirty four. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. A powerful statement of freedom for the one that was receiving the most ultimate blasphemy. The Apostle Paul would say later, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord Jesus. And yet forgiveness is exactly the reason why the cross was, was. Since the beginning of time, sacrifice had always pointed toward the need for the shedding of blood, for the sacrifice of, and, the, and the cleansing of sins. And yet all were just a visionary looking forward. Jesus himself said, that if we forgive others their sins against us, our Heavenly Father will forgive us. In ancient days, it was taught by the religious leaders that if you forgave three times, you were showing great religious strength. We would say today, fool me once, it's on you. Fool me twice, it's on me. But Peter came to Jesus with all of his exalted thought of himself and said, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus said, 70 times seven, 
or infinite. Why? Because unforgiveness is the bondage that changes the person from who they really are. Jesus was on the cross demonstrating to us his royalty because forgiveness is freedom. It reveals the character of the one who is forgiving. Peter, in the first book, second chapter, says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to them who judges justly. Character is the power to entrust oneself to the true king in the midst of trouble. Second, forgiveness is freedom because it allows the forgiver to maintain their own identity. If anyone slaps you on the face, Jesus said, turn him to the other. This is not a call to become a mat for somebody to walk over because God does not um, entertain sin and neither should we. But notice the word, turn to them. This reference is the action of unchanged identity of the victim. That the victim is willing to forgive in the midst of pain. And Jesus demonstrated that as he was whipped, beaten, crowned with a crown of thorns, mocked and nailed, nails driven through his hands and his feet on the cross. His identity was never changed. But notice something very important here. Jesus didn't say, I forgive you. He asked the Father to forgive them. Forgiveness does not set the perpetrator free. It sets the forgiver free. Jesus was free. And so, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23 tells us in verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. When considering the last words of Jesus before his death, we have to consider that the ability to speak and exhale during crucifixion would be increasingly more difficult. In fact, the, the, the cause of death for crucifixion, one of them was suffocation. That the weight of the body, only held up by the arms, caused asphyxiation. Loss of oxygen. So everything that Jesus says is with great intention. And everything that the 
criminals say is with great intention. It would be easier to say nothing, but they choose to waste their limited breath, to use their limited breath to make statements about Jesus. And Jesus was crucified between two criminals. This was intentional. Intentional from the Lord's plan of things because he was prophesied to be numbered among criminals. And it was intentional from the religious leaders and the Romans perspective because they wanted to discredit him and see that he is no better than these criminals. The word criminal that Luke uses could also be insurrectionist, revolutionary, thieves, uh, whatever the definition is, it's one that has violent actions. They were living the mission statement of the devil. Steal, kill, and destroy. This is a far cry from the mission of Jesus that we've been speaking together about for these 40 days. Jesus came to seek and to save. He came to serve and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. These two men likely committed heinous crimes. Heinous enough to gather the attention of Rome. Petty thieves weren't crucified. This wasn't shoplifting or stealing an apple because they're hungry from the market. These were heinous crimes. Serious rebel threats. Maybe they killed Jew and Gentile alike to bring about their own revolution. Well, their revolution was nothing like Jesus. And perhaps that's why they mocked him. That the end of their revolution and the end of his, they both ended up on a Roman cross. And they shared the shouts of the crowd. If he is the Messiah, if you really are who you say you are, save yourself. And one criminal adds, and save us. But one of the crucified men, though not in our passage, but earlier, he mocked Jesus as well. It says he jeered and mocked at him. He was one of the ones that Psalm 22 prophesies as shaking their heads at the suffering one. He saw something in the span of time from when they were crucified till now. Maybe, maybe he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, and something struck him. Maybe he saw the compassion that Jesus had on those who were killing him. Whatever happened, and by miracle, God granting him repentance, he saw who Jesus truly was. This This is what he saw. We deserve the punishment. He wasn't offended that we use the term criminal. Criminal he was. Heinous crimes he committed. We know what we've done. From childhood until now, our sins have come against God. He knew that. There was no doubt. He did not try to be his own best lawyer and think, well, surely it was for a better cause. The end justified the means. He said, I know I have done grievous things against the Lord. 
but he is innocent looking at Jesus. He doesn't deserve this death on a cross. And he also recognized he is Messiah. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He is the king. No doubt he did not know or grasp all of the details, but he believed somehow Jesus would still have a kingdom. This criminal had no religious resume, no good life lived, no scale of good works outweighing his bad, but just simply, I deserve punishment. Jesus is innocent, and Jesus is king. And Jesus' response to this was not, oh, you were so close, you almost made it. Or was not, you've committed too many crimes, I don't want to be associated with you. Jesus says, truly, truly, this day you will be with me in paradise. When Jesus says, truly, truly, or verily, or assuredly, it's the Greek word, amen. Amen. Absolutely, certainly, no maybes, ifs, ands, or buts. Because of he recognizing who Jesus truly was, Jesus tells him today, you will be with me in paradise. And when the thief, unbaptized, no church attendance, when he closed his eyes in death, he opened his eyes and saw Jesus. The third royal decree is the decree of humanity, of compassion. In the midst of cruelty on the cross, the soldiers heartlessly gambling for the outer garments, all of a sudden the Spirit directs John to the attention of Jesus. John 19 says this, when Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. In the midst of the most inhumane moment in history, the crucifixion of the only perfect human being, Jesus revealed the humanity of his compassion. Compassion is to care for the details of those he loved. The compassion on completion of that. Compassion is not only our soul experiencing the realness of our own everyday life, but also the opportunity that the Holy Spirit gives us to f- take the, f- the focus off of our life and experiences of the life of another. Incarnation is the reality that God himself came to live among us, walk with us, experience life with us, 
As the author of Hebrews says, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so humanity, from heaven's voice speaking, through the birth canal of a woman, to live in and among us, to feel what we're feeling, to experience what we're going through. The humanity of Christ is seen from the cross as he reveals his love for his mother. John 13 said that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, and this truly proves it. Interestingly, Jesus didn't give his earthly mother to her own children. His step-siblings, who were at the time unbelievers, for his family did not believe in him until after the resurrection. But he gave him to the disciple John. We also see his humanity in the statement that says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. His humanity is known as the Messiah is to fulfill all scripture and that all prophecies would be brought to completion in Jesus Christ. The phrase, I am thirsty, then fulfills the prophecy found in Psalm 69, 21. They'll put gall in my food and give me vinegar for my thirst. This is the same liquid used to deaden the pain of crucifixion that they attempted to give Jesus first when he was on the cross. But he refused it. For it was Jesus' compassion and love that he wanted to experience the very depth of our pain, experience the very depth of everything you and I feel in our hearts. Jesus wanted to feel that in of himself. He wanted his humanity to experience the full depth of the cup of his Father's wrath against our sin. The compassion, royalty of God is seen through Scripture like in Exodus 34, 6, says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Even at the brink of death, God's compassion shine through even in his humanity. Paul understood this royalty when he said, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction. For the sake of his body, which is the church. The royalty of compassion is his deep love and concern for you and the truity of the word of God. The next statement, decree, is that Jesus was forsaken. Matthew 27, verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. 
About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness in Scripture. Sudden darkness that came over the land was associated with judgment. Exodus 10.22 says, So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Prophet Amos, verse 8-9 says, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Isaiah 5.30 says, They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. Joel 3, 14 through 15 says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. We're told at noon, the time when the sun would be brightest and hottest in the sky, it goes dark. God's judgment had come. In the cross, we do see mankind's greatest injustice. The only innocent one, the only one who's never wronged another person, the only one who's never sinned against the Lord, crucified. But while humanity was committing the greatest injustice, God was pouring out his justice. Now the Lord Jesus does not take the opportunity to jeer at the crowd. Jesus could have said that what they were about to get is coming to them. Judgment had come. They messed up. They had mocked Jesus one too many times. Perhaps if we were his disciples looking on, which they didn't, except for John, because they'd ran, but if they had been there, maybe they thought, it isn't over, Jesus will not die, God's going to get this crowd of hypocrites and murderers via execution. But Jesus doesn't say, my God, my God, forsake them. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. God had forsaken Jesus. Not the crowd. Not the executioners. Not the religious leaders. Not the backstabbers or betrayers. But Jesus. The prophet Habakkuk in one thirteen says that God cannot look on sin. He says, you who are of pure eyes... Than to see evil, 
cannot look at wrong. God could not look at sin. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, there's only one candidate for that, it's Jesus. Listen to this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus on the cross, blameless, spotless Lamb of God, became sin. The only one who was holy, perfectly righteous, spotless, and blameless had become the stand-in for all that was wrong and unholy and wicked and sinful. We read that Jesus cried out at three in the afternoon. Three in the afternoon would be the time that the commencement of killing the Passover lambs would begin. The Passover lamb, Jesus, bled. The scapegoat has absorbed all of our sins. And this was how he could say, Father, forgive them. This is how he could say, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus took the sin of the thief. Jesus took the sin of the mockers and the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers and every sin that's ever been committed and every sin that ever will be committed, including yours, including the ones you did this morning, including the ones you'll do tomorrow. Jesus took all of the sins on himself. And the darkness that was so thick and palpable over the land for three hours, from noon to three, the darkness was judgment, but that judgment was pointed at Jesus. It is the degree as sung in the song we just sang, it is finished, that Jesus said just after he had received the drink. He shouted this as he lifted his feet off, lifted himself off of the nails with the final breath that he had in his mouth. But the words are not words of defeat. They're words of victory. They're words of completion. Finally, in human history, one has obeyed completely from the garden in which all humanity sinned to the point of a child born and at 12 years old found to be teaching scholars in the temple who when he came out of baptized, being baptized went into the desert for 40 days 
and was tempted by the devil, hungry and weak. Who in the garden sweat drops of blood because the anxiety, the stress was so great on his being. And then being abandoned by his own, found himself alone. And even abandoned by his own father, who could not look on sin and made Jesus Christ sin, he said, it is finished. The work of redemption is complete. Lived out in the, in the body of a human, none other than God himself, Jesus single-handedly became the atonement for the sin of all. He defeated Satan and rendered him powerless to destroy, except through a willing heart of a human. Jesus met every requirement of God's righteous law and satisfied the wrath of God. It is finished. It is complete. A poem that was written by Anna Anderson. As Jesus hung upon the cross and drew his final breath, he called out, it is finished. Then he bowed his head in death. His words were few and simple and would seem as though to say he knew his life was over and death would not delay. But I rejoice in knowing his words meant so much more. It was life, not death, that conquered and opened heaven's door. He meant that death no longer ruled or controlled my destiny. He offered me eternal life if I would just believe. He meant my debt, debt was canceled, the one I owed for sin. He paid the price in full that day to make me pure. Within, He meant he took the stains of sin and cast them far away. He will remember them no more, even till my dying day. He meant that sickness, fear, and pain could never rule my life, for he bore them on the cross that day, along with doubts and strife. Although his words were simple, and he spoke so very few, they meant so very much to me, and he spoke them for you too. It is finished. It will be said again. For on that day, when the age of man comes to an end, there will be the words from heaven that says, It is done. The final statement of Jesus is committing his spirit. Luke chapter 23 tells us the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit.
And when he had said this, he breathed his last. It was at this time that the great darkness that had fallen over the land and God's judgment being poured out on Christ was repealed. The warm, bright, three o'clock sun shone again. We read that the curtain, that great veil that stood in the temple, the boundary between God's holy presence and sinful, contaminated man, do not cross. It was torn from top to bottom. For all who would look to him in faith, the holy of holies, God's presence was open to them. The book of Hebrews chapter 10 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilt and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that by his death on the cross, the whole scene that has been laid out before you, Jesus has accomplished for all who believe access to the Father by the one Spirit. Jew and Gentile. All people. Access to the Father. Who was once separated far off. We have access to him confidently in his throne room. You notice what Jesus cries out. Moments, minutes ago, we heard Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only instance in all of Scripture where Jesus addresses God as God and not Father. The only moment. The only moment for God's wrath was being poured out on him. But Jesus now returns to the sweet unity of my father. The son was no longer forsaken. The wrath was finished being poured out. And the penalty for all sin was paid, paid in full. Jesus, before prophetically quoted Psalm 22, now quotes Psalm 35.1, but adds, my father, 
a new relationship for us. Because of Jesus, because of what happened tonight, we will never have to say, if you believe in Jesus, and I'm not saying just believe that these were historical events, that's fine. Most atheistic scholars do. But if you believe in him, if your dependence is upon him, if you believe that was my Passover, that was my scapegoat, that was the one who absorbed my sin and died, if you believe that, you will never have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you will only ever say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Never to be forsaken. It appeared that the cross by earthly powers and the powers of evil enacted a surprise attack on Jesus. But to the contrary, this was Jesus' surprise attack on them. And now the work was to tell us die. It's finished. His birth, his life, his obedience, his humility, his teaching, his miracles, and his sacrificial death had come to an end. It was over. Jesus was dead. He was buried in a borrowed grave from a sympathizer named Joseph of Arimathea. You could reflect on Jesus from borrowed manger to borrowed grave. His disciples are scattered and in mourning. Tonight was full of confusion for them. But we know this isn't the end. Because Sunday's coming. And it will be proved that all Jesus did, his perfect spotless life, his death in our place, was accepted by the Father.